Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, well women. Today on the show, I interview Ellen Galinsky, the president of Families and Work Institute and the elected president of the Work and Family Researchers Network. She serves as a senior advisor to the immediate office of the assistant secretary of youth mental health at the administration for children and families. And she was the chief science officer for a number of years at the Bezos Family Foundation. Her research has focused on work life, children's development, parent professional relationship, and parental development. Galinsky's the author of Mind in the Making and the Breakthrough Years. She's also the author of over 90 books and reports in journals, magazines, and on the web. Today, we'll discuss work with women and children, her upcoming book, and what the most common thing is kids wish for for their parents. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about Girls on the Run Rio Grande, a social and emotional development program driven by an evidence-based curriculum that helps third to fifth grade girls build confidence, kindness, and decision-making skills. They are well women in the making. Their programming is delivered by volunteer coaches, and they need more coaches. The impact of a Girls on the Run volunteer coach is incredible, and you can deepen your leadership skills, find joy in helping others, and learn new perspectives. Coaches bring the evidence-based curriculum to life and are at the heart of what makes Girls on the Run a one-of-a-kind program. At every practice, their encouragement inspires girls to actively and reach their limitless potential. The organization provides coaches with all the training and supplies necessary, so prior experience is not required. For links and more information to find out how you can be a volunteer coach for Girls on the Run, go to the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash radio. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from Collective Action Strategies, a consulting firm that supports systemic change so that women and families thrive, and by the Well Woman Life Movement Challenge at wellwomanlife.com slash quiz. As always, all the links and information are at wellwomanlife.com slash 325 show. I'm speaking with Ellen Galinsky. Welcome to the program. It's wonderful to be with you. It's so great to have you on the show. I have come across you and your work over the course of my career. So it was really nice to connect with you professionally recently and uh, to invite you onto the show. So Ellen, why don't we start by having you share with listeners, who are you in the world today? Well, as my pictures show, I'm a daughter and a mother and a grandmother. That's my youngest grandson there. I am a, um, a researcher who practices civic science, which means that the studies that I do are based on questions that people ask and are the people who would be the subjects of your study co-create them with you. And I think the best way to describe my career has been uh, that I'm a research adventurer. I follow questions about children, about families, about work and family, um, about work itself, but, uh, you know, in that area. But those, yeah. those are the questions I followed. How fun to to be a research adventurer. That just sounds 
like you get to be curious all day long. But I know it's also a lot of hard work and a lot of collaborating and probably fundraising and and all kinds of things. How does your work impact women and families? I never want to do work that sits on a shelf. Everything that we do is designed for action. Give you an example of an older study. This is in the days before family leave was passed in this country. And I began to notice that different states were passing various parental leave or family leave kinds of laws. And I wondered what the impact of it of these laws were. There were some people who said they would destroy business. There were other people who said they wouldn't really help families. I mean, you know, the political, you know, the spectrum was huge. And so um, it took me a while to convince uh, a funder to fund this work. It was at a conference and um, I asked the my program officer to be, to take a walk with me. And by the end of the walk, I had it excited her about how important this study was, and it turned out to be important. And um, and the way that I wanted to do it was to build in the jeopardies for this study. It was going to be seen as either on the side of parental leave or on the side of business and against parental leave or family leave. And so the way that we did it was we picked five, four states that differed in the in the policy dimensions of what was being passed. In one, there was temporary disability insurance, so the leave was funded. Um, in another, there wasn't. Some leaves, some had short leaves, some had longer leaves. Men were included in various ways or partners were included in various ways. So the idea was to go to the states and to get the people who had most supported the law. These are, again, there's no federal law at this point. Right. The people who had most supported the law and who had most contested the law together in a room and to go around the room, this is civic science at work, and say, you didn't want this law to happen. What were you worried about? You did want this law to happen. You know, what sort of, what do you want to know about it and how it's working? And we came up with a set in these four states. Um, we were sponsored by the lieutenant governor or the governor, and we came up with a set of questions that the warring parties, so to speak, could agree on. I don't know if you could have that in today's more um, politically uh, divisive world, whether you'd even get them in a room together, but I could well, at that time. How long ago was this? This was in the early 90s. Okay. It was in 91. And uh, so I've been doing this for a long time. And um, we did a study where we we followed the impact of the law on business and um, and we followed the impact on of the law on families and not on children, but on the on the adults themselves. And um you know, when we had the results, no one could say that it was partisan, um, although some people wanted to distance themselves. And there was something in the findings for everyone to love, and there was something in the findings for everyone to hate. But the important thing about the study was, is that it was seen as as neutral as you can be seen in a world that is, you know, very partisan. And um, and that when Bill Clinton was elected um, running for president, uh, Hillary Clinton called us the day the study came out. I remember, you know, in the days when you had little pink slips, you know, when someone uh, telephone message, I got yeah. you know, Hillary Clinton called you, please call her back. Um, and um, 
he was running for president and and decided he had an economic summit to which I was invited after he was elected president. And um, and on the basis of this study, because it hadn't harmed business in the way that business, you know, most of the businesses said that it didn't hurt them, didn't affect them one way or another, um, you know, hadn't helped them enormously, hadn't hurt them enormously. Um, mm-hmm. He decided um, with a lot of um, work from the people who were the advocates, we weren't the advocates, we were the researchers, um, to make that the first law that he passed in his new administration. So it was designed in as much as it could be for, you know, for making a difference. And all of our studies in different ways are designed that way. We, 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 when we're designing the study, um, we think about what difference could it make from the beginning. Yeah. So that was when, um, you're talking about, uh, Family medical leave FMLA, yeah. and and that was not paid leave though. Yeah. Um, so so, but just for listeners, you know, and for context, that was a really important piece of legislation um, a few decades ago. And now there's a really big effort in various states to uh, look at FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act, and actually make it paid because. Uh, who, you know, who can afford to take the leave? I'm not sure if people, and I'm sure you've studied this, uh, but people, you know, do take the leave or they don't take the leave because it's not paid and they can't afford to take the time off. And even in our study, and now this is 1991 and the law, uh, the family and medical leave law was passed in in early uh, 1993. In our study, one of the states, Rhode Island, had temporary disability insurance, um, which um, gave uh, people paid time off as part of disability, um, women and not men, but women. Now, now we've moved, you know, somewhat not so far away from that. Um, but um, we found that low-income people could not take the leave in other states, but where the temporary, temporary disability insurance was connected to it, a lot more low-income women could take, uh, you know, more than just a few days off. And we found people taking less than two weeks off. So mm. pretty shocking after you've had a baby. But if you have to That's... work to feed your family, you know, it's not so shocking. Right. And so you obviously have been involved in this uh issue for a long time. And now with so many efforts in, in different states to, uh, to pass paid leave, um, what would you say, what, what do you say to both sides that are battling this out? Um, I know for certain in the state I live in, the, the paid leave um, issue has been a real battle and continues to be. Um, what, what do you say to business that that is adamant that it won't work for them. And, um, well, I mean, I think that like so many issues that involve the family, childcare is another one. It's economically unsustainable to do this just by business alone. So there has to be a government side and there has to be a business side and there has to be a personal side. And so we need solutions. I mean, childcare is the forever um, bet noir, if you want to, you know, uh, unsolvable problem because families can't really pay what it costs to have good quality childcare. And yet these are the most formative years of, 
of among the most formative years. Adolescence is another very formative time of brain development. Now, our studies were designed um, and are designed um, to speak to business. We, for decades, uh, did a nationally representative study of the U.S. workforce and a nationally representative study of the U.S. workplace. And those studies, again, using civic science, were designed by asking both employees and employers, what keeps you up at night? You know, what are you worrying about? What are you mm-hmm. thinking about? What do you want answers to your questions? So I get to be curious, but I build on other people's curiosity. And I've just written a book that will be coming out in March on adolescence, where I started by ac- asking adolescents, what do you want to know about your own development? And what do you want um, the adults of America to know about people your age? And I'm going to go out and talk to researchers. Um, and what do you want me to ask them? So honestly, I never, never, never would have done, I think, as good a study as I hope that it is. It's we did two nationally representative studies and a behavioral study. We we never, never, never would have done as good a study without this being informed by young people themselves. What young people are interested in isn't necessarily what the adults of the world um, hmm. interested in. So I always think of it when you talk to kids and when you talk to parents as you're looking at a picture window, but you're seeing a different view. I think one of my better known studies was called Ask the Children. And this is the studies that I've been doing forever. Uh, the new study for my new book. <clears throat> I'm sorry, the new study for my book is in that series um, where I ask kids, um, if you had one wish, that could affect the way your mother's or your father's work affects your life, what would that wish be? And I asked parents to guess. And only 2% of parents, in an, again, open-ended question in a nationally representative group, guessed what, what kids wished. Parents thought that kids would wish for you. You probably will, can guess what you think. What um, you kids probably wish that their parents worked less? Yes, most people thought time. They wish their parents were less tired and stressed. So not just more time, but more present time. Yes. Yeah. Mm. They cared about what the parents were like in the time that they were together. Yeah. Well, that's... Time was important. I'm not saying time wasn't important, but the kids didn't surgically separate the time, the amount of time from what happened during that time. Well, that brings up a really interesting topic, which is the the level of stress and anxiety mm-hmm. that parents, men and women... But I, I mostly look at women. the the uh, the levels of stress and anxiety because of uh, m- mostly I'm going to say because of the systems that that we operate in that don't support um, us to uh, to live without stress, right? When when I found that kids wanted their parents most of all to be less stressed and less tired, that led into a series of efforts that really I've been working on since 1997, which is to ask, what about work both helps us in our personal and family life and helps us at work? In other words, how can we make work work better for us? And again, most people think of policies and uh, things like workplace flexibility, and they are absolutely important. But what we found was that there are other things that are maybe even, you know, let's take that as a floor, but uh, there are other things that really, oh gosh, allergies, sorry, 
uh, what we found is that there are other things that are really, really important. Um, so we did a nationally representative, we did an ongoing nationally representative study of the U.S. workforce, and we could play with our data. And we could say, okay, we have 610 data points. What are the predictors of work that works for people in their personal and family life and at work? And we created a model of an effective workplace, things like a culture of, of respect and trust or um, having bosses who understand that you have a personal and family life, um, uh, being supported at work, those sorts of things. So we created this model of an effective workplace. And then we worked with Sherman. We, again, took it out all over the country and gave awards. We gave over 5,000 awards for small, mid-sized, and large employers that made work work. Our project was called When Work Works. It's hard to say, When Work Works. Um, and then during the pandemic, we looked at our data in a slightly different way. We looked at what is predictive of people who had, who have had a COVID-like experience? We had done the data collection before the pandemic, but we had, we had, had asked about adverse experiences. So people who had lost someone, people who had been sick, people who'd been taking care of someone who's sick, people who had lost their jobs, you know, those sorts of adverse, um, mm -hmm. life experiences. And we came up with a new model of an inclusive workforce. Okay. Then I'm working on my book on adolescence, and I'm beginning to see that when adolescents' brains light up, particularly are most activated, there's certain things going on in their lives. And I could make a connection. Most people don't study kids and, and most, and, and uh, adults in the workplace. I do. Right. So I could say, whoa. If I go back and I look at the items that really popped on our national study of the, of the changing workforce, you know, the ones that were the most predictive, they're the same kinds of things that I'm finding in kids. And then went to theory. And self-determination theory holds that we have a set, all of us, all people, have a set of basic psychological needs. Um, we need to feel related to other people. We need to feel connected to other people. One need. Two, we need to feel, have some autonomy. This is in self-determination theory. And three, we need to feel competent. Then I could look at the research on adolescence and say, yes, but those needs are a little bit more complex. And um, for example, we need to feel that we belong, but we also need to be supported. And with autonomy, we need to have some autonomy. We also needed to be treated with respect. And then with competence, um, which I call mastery, we need to be feel uh, in environments where we can be competent, but we also need to be in environments that we're challenged, where we're stretched, where we grow and learn. We also need identity. That is, we need to feel that we can be who we are and learn who we are. And then we need to feel some sort of purpose. That is, what we're doing is meaningful and it gives back to others in some way. So I could take those five needs, which are caring connections, which are agency, which are um, mastery, which are identity and purpose, those five needs, and look during the pandemic at kids in five different different environments with their friends, all people related, because it's relationships that make the biggest difference. So I could look at what was going on for kids um, with their family and friends, um, with their family, with their friends, um, with the people at school, with the people in out-of-school activities and online, and I and look across those five needs 
And I found, then the pandemic happened, and so I went back and did another study of the kids. And I found that if those needs were met, those psychological needs were met, the kids were doing so much better during the pandemic. So I go, aha, I'm going back to the national study, and I'm looking at the items that ask those kinds of questions. And those were the ones that popped. You know, Mm -hmm. my instinct had been correct. I did a side-by-side analysis. And now we've just created a new index of a thriving workplace which we're using with Head Start teachers for for a start, um, because we believe that you talked about how much stress we're all experiencing and that sort of thing. We found that if you're in a thriving workplace, that your stress is is lower, that you're less likely to be depressed, that you're less likely to have physical health problems. Um, so you have me- you know better mental health, better physical health. You're also more engaged in your work. Um, you have less conflict in your work and family life. So now we're we have a new index, you know, three decades later, the Thriving Workplace Index, that we are beginning to take out to employers around the country. Well, I love this so much. So much of what you've just said um, relates back to our conversation when we reconnected professionally recently, and which is why I wanted to have you on the show because of your long history with all of this and your When Work Works <laughs> project and how that relates to the family friendly business award that I founded and that is right. in several states now and but I love that you are um you know looking at this beyond workplace policies but looking at the culture and relationships and and then I I absolutely am fascinated by this kind of comparison the parallel between what it takes to thrive at work and what teens need to thrive because this is these are not two things that people usually talk about in the same sentence or in the same anything and it makes so much sense i have a teenager and i <laughs> and i do a lot of work on workplace so it it makes a ton of sense how do you think this translates to action or to policy even though it's not rooted in policy because it's it's rooted in relationship our first taking this to action, you know, research to live by was the motto of um, Families and Work Institute, you know, to live, to learn. We, the first experiment now is with Head Start uh, teachers. They have a big turnover problem. Um, teachers in every field, you know, yeah. there's a turnover problem. Same with the health healthcare industry. We're working with Head Start where we have, we do the survey in the fall. We've just, it's just out right now. Um, we're piloting with seven programs. And then they will look at their data and they'll do a change experiment. They will create something that makes their workplace better. We found it very, you know, being in a thriving workplace was very linked to retention. Uh, you were less likely to plan to leave if you, and 37% of the teachers in the preliminary study we did were planning to leave. So, you know, this is a third, you know, it's a major, major issue. And, um, and then they'll do a change experiment to improve their work. We also, another concept that we've developed is the notion of a possibilities mindset. This is for adults, this is for kids. And a possibility mindset builds on the amazing work of Carol Dweck, if we all probably know a fixed and, and, um, growth mindset. The notion of a fixed mindset is things can't change. The growth mindset is things can change. I interviewed parents um, in between these two nationally representative studies that I did, and I asked them to walk 
walk me through a time when they lost it with their kid, you know, when they weren't the parent that they wanted to be. Not not necessarily throwing things and yelling, but just so they they didn't live up to their own expectations. Mm-hmm. They weren't the parent they wanted to be. And so, you know, I would ask, so your kid did this. What did you do? What did you feel? What did you think? You know, they'd walk me through their their mindset during you know, one of these these times. And I began to see that there were three things going on. One was a growth or, or um, fixed mindset. The second was really important. They either saw it as a threat, you know, which takes us into a we, they, fright or flight kind of a notion, a threat, you know, mm-hmm. we, we have a very high stress reaction to a threat. And it just, it activates one, you know, certain regions of the brain. Or they saw it as a challenge, which activates a whole other networks in the brain. And if you see it as a challenge, you wonder about it. You're curious about it. You feel like you could begin to figure it out. So the second thing that was happening was it was you you had a growth mindset. Things can change. Two, the second thing is you saw it as as a challenge, not a threat. And the third thing is self-efficacy. That is the belief that I can figure it out. I believe mm-hmm. that I can you know, solve this problem. I may not not know the answer today or tomorrow or the next day, but I think I can figure it out if I work hard at it or get advice or do whatever I need to do. So we call that a possibilities mindset. So in our work with now Head Start teachers, we're going to incorporate this notion of a possibility mindset and have staff set individual work goals, professional development goals, um, and use a we've created a possibility mindset process where they can take their own professional development goals and take them to action. So you hear the theme song in my work, you know, research mm-hmm. that. And, yeah. um, we're doing a group change experiment, individual change experiments. We'll see if they improve the workplace in a way in Head Start's point of view or any employer's point of view. Does this improve work outcomes? Does it improve personal outcomes? You know, are people less likely to want to leave? Are they in better are they less stressed? Are they in better mental health? And what I love about this is that there there isn't an abdication of responsibility on the part of any partner, right? Like you're still saying, okay, the employee has a big responsibility. They can do these change experiments and have a possibility mindset, but also the employer has a responsibility to participate and collaborate in this. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Ellen Galinsky. If you're in burnout or in major transition, this is your time to figure out what's holding you back from making the changes you need in order to live your fullest, most joyful life. The causes of all our challenges, personal or professional, can actually be rooted in the lack of internal superpowers and external supports. Our Well Woman Life Framework tells you which stage of the Well Woman Life Cycle you're in and what to do about it so you can truly start living your life. You can find out more at wellwomanlife.com slash quiz. We're back on the show with Ellen Galinsky. And one yeah. of the big, big, big things from research is, and we we tended for years because we're a very individualistic country, to study individuals and not the context that they were in. But right. I might behave very differently in school or in a work one workplace than in another workplace. And the context where we are, you know, the people we're with, the environment that we're with, its culture, its norms, it's, we've all had jobs where we were like not our best selves and we've all had jobs where we were our best selves. And so we need to look at both the individual and the context, which is, 
again, a big, big, big theme song, song from brain development. The brain reacts to the specific context that it's in. Yes. And that's such a big theme for me and my work and, and the folks that I have on this show, which is why you're here, which is that we do need to be working in systems. It's not just all about individual behavior. Dr. Wendy Ellis talks about, you know, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And she really kind of is trying to reframe that to say adverse childhood environments so that we're looking at the the context within which these experiences happen. Yeah. And, and other work that people have done have shown that even if you have adverse child environments, if you had positive childhood environments, they can counter the impact and it and it's relationships. It's that one caring or two caring people, teacher, coach, friend, you know, parent, whomever, grandparent. If you've got those people in your life, which is why I think we have to focus on relationships when even when we look at systems, people relationships exist within systems. Ellen, you are but before we go to the next to, to the final segment, I want to just talk briefly about the upcoming conference in 2024 for the Work and Family Researchers Network, of which you are president. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the uh, conference is for listeners who may be interested? I do. I'm very excited about it. Though WFRN, as we fondly call it, uh, Work and Family Researchers Network, is um, it hosts a conference every other year, and it's largely an academic conference, uh, but it brings the best researchers literally from all over the world uh, together. And one of the jobs of being the president is you get to figure out what the theme of the conference should be. So back to civic science. I interviewed the past presidents and I said, look, you helped to create this field of work and family life. So where do you think we are? Where do you think we're going? And then where should the theme of the conference fit into this? And what are your hopes for me as president? That's what I ask each of the seven past presidents. And each one of them went, "Mm," you know, like a beehive for the question that they were really, you know, puzzling about, thinking about. And they were all different. You know, one person was thinking about the impact of hybrid work. Another person was thinking about the structure of work. Another person was thinking about work and family and other people. Another person was thinking about solutions from all over the world. And I was talking to Kathleen Christensen, who is a former past president, and she said something, blah, 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 big questions. And I went, big questions. That's the theme of the conference. So that is the theme of the conference. They're the questions that we have about work about family, about the connection between work and family, or connections among, I should say, work and family. It's about life cycle, how this changes for people at different times in their lives in different places. And then solutions. What are the best promising policies and practices from around the world? The meeting will be in Canada, um, in uh, Montreal. So it's very important that, and this is a global organization. So One of the things that we're going to do that's really different is we're going to have a series of TED-like talks. I guess we'll call them WFRN talks. I'm not sure. But the people who are really some of the thought leaders in the field doing talks so that we can get our work out into – so rather than plenaries, you know, we'll have um, a series of of 10, 15-minute talks. Um, I have five sessions that I can devote to this, maybe three to four people per session. And um, we will share the best wisdom from the field. So if you're there, you'll get that in addition to an amazing network of people who study and care about this. And afterwards, we'll release a couple of these a month. You'll get the, you'll, you'll get the best thinking from, from around the world on how yeah. we 
you know, what the future of work and family are going to be and, and how we best navigate it. Yeah, great. It's it's an amazing conference. I've been several times and I'm I'm excited about this one. The Well Woman Show is a partner for the conference, so you'll be hearing more from me about it in, in the coming months. And he, and we're going into the quick segment called Superpowers for Success where we get to know our guests a little bit deeper about you and your leadership. And Ellen, the first question I have for you is what does success in life mean for you? I won an award a number of years ago, and I didn't know what to say when I won the award. So I asked my kids what I should say. My daughter said what I ended up saying, which is uh, two things. One is fear means go. Mm. And the second thing is she asked me what I most wanted to be remembered. What what did I, what was my legacy? What did I care about my work? And And the answer for me was generosity. I mean, what I really hope that our work has done over the years and and the relationships we have with people is to give back. And Ellen, when did you know you were really good at what you do? I think when you're writing a book, you have imposter syndrome. It took me in my first book to think, you know, I was taking on some of the greats and taking on some of the major theories in child development when I was writing a book on the six stages of parenthood. And so, you know, you say, why me? Why should I be doing this? And then when I realized that it was normal to have that, to feel like, well, you know, maybe it shouldn't be me, um, then I feel like, well, why not me? I don't care that much about success in that sense for me, but I care very much about wanting to get it right for other people. Mm. I really, 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 really care. Mm. And can you describe a personal habit that contributes to your well-being so you can do everything that you do in the world? I take my dogs for about um, a couple of mile walk every day. Good weather usually. Mm. I have who don't do rain, but we, I photograph. Uh, we live near a river and we go down to the river every day. I sing to them down by the riverside. They know that it's time to, they get all excited because it's time to get ready to go for our walk. And uh, I photograph and I've, I'm a serious photographer. My father was a photographer and it just, it's a here and now. It takes you out of your everyday but when you're down by the river with, with my dogs, it's just, it's always different. Every day this river is different. I have been photographing the river now since February, and every single day it's a different river. Oh, I love that. And for listeners, just the takeaway here for me anyway, is just really finding that thing in your life or in your day that can bring you that sense of being present with yourself and with, with nature too. Okay, last couple of questions. What superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? When I went to school, I was more of a, you know, short direct sentence writer. And I went to a school that loved Jane Austen, long sentences with phrases upon phrases upon phrases. And I I was not that writer. And I was told that I couldn't, couldn't write. I don't think I believed it when I wrote my first book, which was on the transition to parenthood. And I got a rejection from a very, very well-known editor in New York. And he said, you make decisions in life and you're never quite sure if you've made the right decision. And I have to tell you that turning down your book was a really hard decision because you write so beautifully. If I'm writing a book, I get up every morning and rewrite everything I wrote the day before, before I start the day's work. You know, mm. I write and I rewrite and I rewrite. Okay, good. And what advice would you give your younger self, say your 25 or 30 year old self? I don't know that I have regrets if that's 
what that is about. I was elected the president of the National Association for the Education of Young Children. And basically, it meant during speaking season that you went to a conference every single weekend. But there was one weekend that I was supposed to be away, and my daughter really didn't want me to go. And it was last minute, and they were counting on me. But I called up, and I regretted. I said, I can't go. My daughter needs me. The advice to my younger self would be, if you're making one of those like no-win kind of decisions, uh, you have to ask yourself, what would you look back on and regret? And I knew that I wouldn't never remember this, this speech, but I would remember that weekend with my daughter, and I do. I love that. That's so powerful and also just really great for listeners to hear who may be really juggling work and family. Ellen, do you identify as a feminist? That That's a very interesting question because I, I live in this house where Betty Friedan lived. She would come to visit her house and it was never my house. It was always her house. And I once corrected her. And then <laughs> in the early days of the people I knew who were feminists, they were more focused on equal rights amendment and those sorts of things and less on the issues that I've spent my life caring about, which are kids, work and family. Yes, I would call myself a feminist in a non-traditional way, which is that I care about the issues that I think are most important in our lives. Yeah, I I would say that I'm a humanist. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Yeah, and a lot of people are answering this question in that way. And uh, just to say, I I see your work as very central to a feminist agenda, even though it hasn't really been front and center as much as I would have liked. Okay, last question for you. What are you reading? What is on your nightstand? Demon Copperhead is on my nightstand. I think it's an amazing book that takes you into a child's eye view. I don't think it's easy for adults to write and remember what it feels like to be a child. And I think Demon Copperfield, Demon Copperhead does an incredible job of making you remember and be your child self. I love that. Okay. We, we love to know what our guests are reading and we'll add that to the show notes for this show. I've been speaking with Ellen Galinsky on The Well Woman Show today. Thank you for your amazing questions. Thanks, Ellen. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman Life, head over to wellwomanlife.com. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week, so be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.